Tonight, uh, we are in uh, number 67, uh, the church and churches. Let me pray and then I'll explain uh, the title. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that we come into the presence of the Lord Jesus. For surely he has said, where two or three are gathered together, In his name, there he is in the midst of his people. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, we are drawn into the very presence of the Lord Jesus. Uh, We ask for your blessing. We pray that as we uh, think through uh, this topic this evening, that you would help us uh, reflect uh, the mind of Christ. Uh, We pray for your blessing as we seek to uh, open up the scriptures in uh, areas of uh, difficulty and tension in church life, Uh, and we ask that in everything uh, your name would be honored and glorified. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, when I was uh, outlining uh, these uh, lectures and and, uh, what we might call them by way of titles, uh, this one simply got the title Church and Churches, which may have led you to think that this was uh, a lecture about the way in which the church is spoken of in the New Testament as one church, uh, and uh, uh, you'll see I've addressed that just, uh, just a little bit. Uh, in point one, uh, the universal uh, church, uh, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it in Matthew 16 and so on. Um, and then the New Testament also speaks of churches in the plural. There's one church, but then there are churches, the church in Ephesus, in Philippi, in Jerusalem, in Antioch, in Rome, uh, perhaps several churches in Rome. Uh, and these uh, Uh, So there's the one church and then there are the many different churches. That's not what the topic was about. I I try to camouflage the topic a little uh, because what I I really want to talk about is how the church um, is divided, uh, that the church splits into denominations, for example. Uh, So we have the Reformed Presbyterian Church, the Presbyterian Church in Uh, America and and the Evangelical Presbyterian Church and and so on. But actually, that's again, that's not really what I want to talk about. Uh, I I really want to talk about how the church is divided by sin within the body of Christ. So the real topic that's before us tonight is is actually church discipline. So if you look at the title, uh, I've got schism and discipline. A couple of quotations from the Westminster Confession. One uh, in uh, chapter 25, that the purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error, and some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, there shall always be, uh, there shall always be a church on earth to worship God Uh, according to his will. And then in chapter 30, uh, on church discipline and church um, censures, uh, 
uh, which we're going to open up um, this evening. Uh, we, can, we can pass over um, the section that I've got there, schism, uh, some information about, um, about how the church is divided and examples of it, uh, East and West, uh, in 1054 uh, over, um, uh, over the, uh, the, the procession of the Holy Spirit from the Father and the Son. Uh, and those, uh, those three words in English with one word in, uh, in Greek, filioque, uh, the church split East and West uh, so that the local Orthodox church here in town, not uh, many blocks from here, uh, the Greek Orthodox Church uh, would not subscribe to the filioque clause uh, that's, for example, to be found in uh, our Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, well, that was a schism that took place a thousand years ago. Um, and then a, an interesting and fascinating schism that took place within the Roman Catholic Church itself uh, in uh, the late 14th, early 15th century, when uh, for a period of about 25 years, uh, there was more than one. Uh, there was more than one pope. Uh, sometimes, and, and, and I want to move away from all of this, but sometimes people get confused. Uh, we, we sometimes talk about the marks of the church uh, as preaching sacraments and discipline, and, and that often arises as uh, an example of the three sort of marks of the church that emerge uh, during the Reformation and post-Reformation period. And, and very often, uh, there'll be a passing reference to John Knox and the first and second books of discipline. Actually, these books of discipline were more about church polity than anything else. Discipline in the sense of there needs to be structure and order within the church. So, so discipline uh, in... Uh, these, these books of discipline by John Knox was not church discipline as, as we are about to talk about it this evening. Well, drop down to point four, uh, church discipline. And uh, church discipline within a local church where the point of church discipline, the aim of church discipline, the goal of church discipline is Restoration. When a brother or sister has strayed, uh, strayed um, morally or strayed uh, sometimes theologically, and, and often uh, one strays morally because one strays theologically. And the reverse is also true, that sometimes in order to justify straying morally, you adjust your doctrine accordingly. Well, uh, this is a difficult and sensitive subject. No one wants to talk about it. Uh, we don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. You don't want to talk about it. But the fact is, it's in the New Testament, and we can't avoid it. Uh, and, and if we are going to uh, um, cover the doctrine of the church, this is one of the areas that we need to think about. Uh, what you do, what does the body do when a brother strays, when a brother or a sister, um, say, commits adultery. What, 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 what is the body supposed to do? There's a subtext here. And the subtext, 
may look simple, but it's one that we need to think about very carefully. That the New Testament is very clear. If it's clear about anything, it's very clear about this. That it's the one who perseveres to the end who will be saved. Let's pick up a couple of texts here. One from Mark 13, from the Olivet Discourse. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Those, Those are Jesus' words. Now, we have to think about that very carefully. The one who endures to the end. So it matters if if a Christian sins, sins, we all sin, but if we sin with a high hand, if we sin publicly, it matters. If we sin publicly and we don't repent of that sin, it matters. Because Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. So enduring... To the end is important. Or take Hebrews 3.14. For we come to share in Christ if, notice the conditional sentence here, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. It's not enough that we begin well and end badly. What these two texts, the subtext here, is the role of the body, the role of the church, in enabling and encouraging perseverance. Now, however difficult, and and the topic we're about to deal with is, is difficult, and it's sensitive. It's negative. And nobody wants to be negative. But I need you to be negative with me if I commit sin publicly. Now, there are, there are sins that are private sins and they're none of your business. They're, they're, they're not public sins. I haven't offended anybody. It's a, it's a private thing. But there are sins that are public that offend other brothers and sisters and harm the body of Christ. What do we do in situations like that? Well, the scripture seems to suggest three levels of discipline and and each one each level gets more severe so so these are not three equal levels these are levels of severity it begins with something called admonition if you're involved in a private dispute between you and a brother you and a sister you and someone else. Matthew eighteen fifteen through 17. It's a well-known text, and it's a well-known text that's well-known for being ignored. Right, every year, almost every year since I've been a Christian, I've gone to a general assembly of the church. I did in Belfast. I did when I was in the Presbyterian Church in America for 16 years, and I've and I've been to every synod meeting of the ARP since I've been here. And every year there's some issue of dispute that, that arises up through the courts of the church. And it arises to the top. And step number one has not been done. Which is Matthew 18. 
Right? It gets passed from one body to another because, because they haven't implemented step number one. If step number one takes place, then it's over. So what does Jesus say in Matthew 18? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Right? Don't go and tell someone else. Don't put it on Facebook. Right? Don't lift the phone to your best friend and say, you'll never believe what so-and-so said. No, go to that person. This, this isn't me saying this. This isn't a session of uh, First Presbyterian Church saying this to you. This is Jesus saying this to you. Well, if somebody offends you, now, you may have the sin of being easily offended. Right? People have that sin. They have this fault. They are easily offended. They are extremely sensitive. They are too sensitive. But if your brother sins against you, there's, there's, no, there's no doubt about the sin. They've sinned against you. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. It's very simple. Right? This is not rocket science. You, you don't need to hire all the lawyers in this room, and there are several of them in the room telling you, you don't need them for this, for this part. True? Later you will. You may need the lawyer to tell you to do this. This is between you and the brother who has offended you, who has sinned against you. Now, if he listens to you, it's over. You have gained your brother. Look, what you said was mean and hurtful. I know it was. I'm sorry. I, I don't know what came over me. I, I know what came over me. I sinned. I'm sorry. I, please accept my apology. I accept your apology. Kiss and make up. Shake hands, hug, whatever. It's over. It's done. You're my brother. We're all sinners. But there's a, there's a pattern to follow. Ah. What if he doesn't listen? Or what if she doesn't listen? Well, take somebody with you. Take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, well, now, we've got a pro- now we do have a problem. Now it goes up the ladder and it tell it to the church. Now what does that mean? That doesn't mean I announce it on Sunday morning along with births and, and, and marriages and deaths. So and so has a dispute with so and so and it hasn't been resolved. No, the church here might mean tell it to the officers of the church and maybe not all of the officers of the church but take it to an elder of the church or a couple of elders of the church or maybe to one of the pastoral staff of the church. This is open to interpretation. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then what? What if this person says, it's none of the church's business? Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Tax collector here meaning sinner. 
Right? If that's your attitude to the church, if that's your attitude to the body of Christ, when they're trying to do something to reconcile you, to ensure that you comply with he that endures to the end shall be saved, then your behavior is like an unbeliever. That's, that's the logic here. Um, There's another role here in admonition. It's not just Matthew 18, uh, Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, right? Who who are they and, and what does that mean? You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. I think Paul is saying in the church in Galatia, look, there are, there are people in the church who are mature. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't define what that means. He doesn't say, and they are A, B, and C, and D. But there are, there are people who are spiritually mature. They, they, they know what to do, and they, they understand the principles of Scripture and help out here. Two people are in dispute. Well, go alongside them as a brother and gently appeal to them. Point them to the gospel. Point them to Christ. Point them to the principles of Scripture. But be careful if you do that. Lest you too be tempted. Lest you be puffed up with pride. Oh, I'm the one who solves all the problems in the churches. And, and a, a balloon of pride grows. What is the aim here? Restoration. You who are spiritual should restore him. The goal here is restoration. To return uh, the, 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 the word to return to its former condition. But, but notice that word gentleness. With gentleness. There's no place in this for bullying or witch hunts. With gentleness. For the good of the body of Christ. Uh, I think there's also, uh, still in this category, this, we're still just in the admonition. Uh, there's the role of the church's oversight, and, and by that I think elders. Uh, in First Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And, and there, I think, is a little glimpse into what is the very early fledgling New Testament church, First Thessalonians written very early on, and as the early church is beginning to grow and have some structure, there are, there are those within the body who have oversight. Uh, we, we'd call them elders today. Respect them. In love because of their work. 
and be at peace among yourselves. Right, so there's a, a level here. This is just level one, and it's, it's at the level of admonition. And sometimes it takes place between a brother and a brother, or a sister and a sister. And sometimes it requires someone else to come in and help them and be a, a witness and, and urge them towards reconciliation. And, and, and sometimes it ends badly. Because they disrespect the process. And, and Jesus says, if you disrespect the process, if you disrespect the church... And, and say, the church has no business getting involved. Then Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So there's a level of admonition. This is not, this is not a, a, a recipe. This is not, this is not a license to snoop, to go around finding trouble and Problems and, 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 and being a, a Mr. Fix-It in the church, that's, that's not what's happening here. But problems arise. They arise because of sin. We're all sinners. We're all broken vessels. We're all capable of doing a multitude of things. And, and sometimes these things should and can be dealt with at stage one. A brother comes in, I, I, you know, I have some personal uh, experiences of somebody coming to me, uh, various stages in my life, uh, when I behaved badly, when I said something out of turn, when I, when, I, when I was just in a bad mood about something. Yeah, I've had days, you might be shocked, I mean, I've had days when I've, I've just not been in good form, and, and it has shown, and somebody has taken offense. Now, did I think that the person was easily offendable? Perhaps. <laughs> Somebody came up to me and said, you need to go and apologize. And you need to do it before the sun goes down. So I get in my car, go straight to the home, apologized at the door. Said, I'm not offering any excuses. My, my behavior was utterly wrong. What I said was completely inappropriate. Please accept my apology. Right? There was a, a, a moment's hesitation, I remember. And, and then all the guard came down. And she said, come in. And there with the uh, husband and children, um, had a cup of tea. And, and it was over. And it's forgotten. I, I haven't forgotten it because it was a growing experience. I wish it hadn't happened. I, I wish I wish I'd have been more Jesus-like, but I wasn't. But it was a it was a wonderful example of somebody coming alongside me, admonishing me, and and trying to do what the Bible says. And and that's where church discipline ought always to be. Well, sometimes it doesn't end there. Right? Sometimes it goes to another level, and there's this second step of church discipline in the New Testament, and it's suspension, and you see it uh, alluded to in Second Thessalonians uh, 3, 6 through 15. Let's read the passage. Now we command you, brothers, oh, look, my, my, <laughs> that's not sin, that's in, uh, my, my computer software 
does this on me, and I, I have to go in and, and remove certain certain. I I need one of these guys who can fix this. Justin, I need somebody to come in and fix this for me. Um, Now, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know that you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Okay, that's a difficult passage. Uh, Let me me pick out five things from the passage. Let's let's walk through it. Notice in verse 6 and again in verse 15, this person is a brother in the Lord. We're not talking about an unbeliever. We're not, we're not talking about somebody whom you already regard as a Gentile and a tax collector, Matthew 18. We're not there. This is a brother in the Lord, a sister in the Lord. This is a professing Christian. Notice, secondly, their lives do not match the gospel. There's a specific issue here in Uh, 2 Thessalonians, and that is somebody who refuses to work. This is not somebody who can't find work. This is somebody who refuses to work, who thinks it is the church's responsibility to support them. Right? As Christians, as as transformed lives in Jesus Christ, we are to, we are to work and, and, and labor. So, so there's something about this person's life that is out of accord with their profession of faith. In this case, it's their idleness. Now notice, thirdly, the church is told what to do. In verse 6, uh, they're told... Um, this person who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us, keep away from that brother. Now, that needs to be interpreted. What does that mean? And then in verses 14 and 15, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them. Now, what does that mean exactly? Well, let's, let's, let's start at the simplest level. Don't 
fraternize with that brother in, a, in such a way as to encourage him in the continuation of his lifestyle. Let's start there. You know, does this mean that you never speak, you never lift the phone, you don't write this person an email, you, don't, you cross the street if you see them coming? Don't go there. C- come back. Come, come back to stage one. At the very least, it's saying, don't fraternize with this person in such a manner that it encourages him in his current pattern of life. The church is given um, a mandate here. It's, it's told what to do. Notice, fourthly, in verse 14, that the purpose is to make them, well, ashamed. Why? In order to restore them. That's how discipline works, isn't it? That's the philosophy of discipline we exercise in rearing our children. Right? That's the philosophy of discipline I exercise with my dog. It doesn't work very well, but that's, that's the philosophy that's behind it. Shame them in order that they might say, oh, I can't believe I'm doing this and saying this. Please forgive me. In order that they might be restored. This is a brother. This is a sister. Now, what if they refuse to be restored? Well, then you're back in Matthew 18, 17 again. You treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. These are just principles. You know, every case, Paul is dealing with specific cases here. And every case is going to be different. And there are going to be, there are going to be circumstances and there are going to be certain uh, aspects of every single case that is, that is unique and different. And the time scale will be different. But the main principle here is you, you, you don't ignore. When a brother is sinning in a public manner, in such a way that their profession of faith is now seriously being called into question. Christians should not be doing this. Then there's a, a stage at which you've gone past admonition and you're in, you're in the stage of, well, what, what church history is called suspension. What does that look like? Well, in the history of the church and in the history of the Reformed church, that that has sometimes meant you suspend them from one of the privileges of church membership, and that is participation at the Lord's table. Now, that that was easier to do in days when when, um, the church had control of who participated and who did not. For example... um, in the old Scottish church, people would come forward to a table. It was much easier to refuse to give somebody um, the, the, the elements of bread if, if they were coming forward. We don't do that. We, we pass a plate along and it's, there is no control over it. 
And, and, and my 35 years of ministry, I've, I've only known suspension taking place on two occasions. One, in one case the person was restored and in the second case he was not. What does that, what does that, um, what does that, uh, verse 6, uh, when it says keep away from any brother, what does that, what does that mean? Well, that needs to be in- interpreted, but I'm saying at the very least it means you don't encourage him or her in the lifestyle that they're now engaged in that is in violation of their profession of faith. And then, um, thirdly, admonition, suspension, and thirdly, um, excommunication, and uh, 1 Corinthians 5 uh, speaks to that issue. Well, let's walk, uh, let's just walk through it. Um, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, stepmother, probably. This is in the church, this is in Corinth. how, How could that happen? I mean, I mean, what kind of culture do you have to be in for, for, for that even to take place? That a man has his father's wife. Uh, we're not told if the father is uh, 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 alive or dead, but one, is, one assumes here that the father is still alive. That there's some kind of affair that is incestuous according to biblical law. Leviticus 18, 8 is... Uh, is is uh, is uh, very clear. It's absolutely clear. It's crystal clear. This is a violation of the law of God. Uh, in the rules of consanguinity, this is out. This is Corinth. I I think perhaps they're adopting the cultural views of their day. They're. They're separating perhaps body and soul, and what you do in the body doesn't really matter very much. That, that Christianity is something that is inward and internal and, and something that you think about and it's in your mind and it's something spiritual, but it doesn't really affect your body. You know, I, I, I don't know how the circumstances came about in Corinth that somebody would actually do this, but Paul is absolutely knocked sideways by it. This is something that the pagans wouldn't tolerate, but it's taking place in the church, in Corinth. And you are arrogant. Oh, my. What does Paul mean? I I think he means the church is doing nothing about it. The church may be arguing a defense case for it in these particular circumstances, violating the commandment, the express commandment of God. Now, you don't get more arrogant than that, that you know better than Scripture. 
that you, that you try to justify your behavior or the behavior of your friends or, or behavior in the church that violates the express commandment of Scripture. You know, Paul, Paul, Paul isn't shy about calling it for what it is. It's, it's just arrogance. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. This has gone past, evidently it has gone past admonition, and it's gone past suspension. And it's gone somewhere else. This, this, this person who is justifying this behavior... Now, Paul will tell you in a minute he's already spoken to this person so that he reaches this conclusion. Verse 3, For though absent in body, that's Paul, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, do you see what Paul is saying? The goal here is restoration. His, his current behavior, his current lifestyle belies any credible profession of faith. He needs to be brought into a position where he behaves bodily. This is a sexual sin he's talking about here. That he behaves bodily in such a way that he will crucify the flesh in order that he might persevere to the end. Your boasting is not good. Well, this is typical of Corinth, of course. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? See, it begins like this. It begins and it says, hey, it's only a small thing. You know, there are are circumstances. There are explanations here. I've heard this happen before. I've been in churches before where this thing goes, goes on and nobody said anything. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. A little leaven. And it leavens the whole lump. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Live gospel-shaped, gospel-focused lives. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Notice how he brings the gospel into church discipline. What's the motivation here? For mortification, for dealing with sin. The gospel. Jesus has died and shed his blood. You shouldn't be living like this. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter. This is a letter that's been lost, probably. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. 
Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to, be, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you to associate, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed. He's not saying that you've got to go and live in a monastery. But you, but you can't tolerate this kind of behavior in the church of Christ. That's what Paul is saying. Well, um, n- notice the language remove. Notice the language deliver to Satan. That's, that's about as strong a language as you could find anywhere. You know, what, what are you doing when you excommunicate somebody? What are you doing when you remove them? from the community of the faithful. Well, you're delivering them up to Satan. As, as Jesus said, you are of your father the devil. Um, drop down to uh, point five, because we only have a minute. Here's the problem text. Whenever you deal with Issues of discipline. Some, somebody is going to quote, judge not lest you be judged. That is the most misquoted text in the Bible. Try it when you cross uh, Bull Street. Don't make any judgments. Just look straight ahead. Just keep walking. Don't, don't make any judgments based on sound or peripheral vision. Just keep straight ahead. Don't make any judgments. You'd be dead before you reach the other side. No, evidently Paul isn't saying, uh, and Jesus isn't saying in Matthew chapter 7, that there are, no, there are no occasions in life when you make a judgment, a judgment call. Sin is sin. If somebody's committing adultery, if, if your partner is committing adultery, that doesn't mean to say you don't make any judgment about it. Well, uh, what do we do with all of this? Well, we need to take it seriously. It's scripture. These are Jesus' words and Paul's words in the New Testament. It's about restoration. It's about what is it that makes for a healthy church? Right? There are lots of other things that make for a healthy church, but this is, this, is, this is one part of it. And it's difficult. It's very difficult, and it's very messy. Sometimes in the life of the body of Christ, your elders have to deal with stuff like this. For which they need your prayers. To rule and govern in a way that brings glory to the Lord Jesus. But the goal is always to restore that brother, that sister who has erred. Because the New Testament is clear. It is he who perseveres to the end. And the church has a role to play in that. 
It is he that perseveres to the end shall be saved. The New Testament is passionate about godliness. I sometimes say to my friends, at least the ones I trust, you know, if, I, if you ever see me doing X, Y, or Z, you just, you just take me behind the woodshed and deal with me. I want you to do that. Because the New Testament is passionate about godliness. The church is the bride of Christ. She ought not to be sullied. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you. These are difficult passages, and uh, we frankly don't know what they mean in all of their details and especially all of their applications. But we do pray tonight for guidance and wisdom and direction and a seriousness um, about these things. That the body of Christ, that the glory of Christ would be enhanced. And it is for Jesus' sake that we ask it. Amen.